Please take your Bibles. We'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 31 and read from verses 22 through to 42. This is the reading of God's word. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away, because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent and did not find them. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt 
through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was, by day, the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. This is the reading of God's word. Now ask the pastor to come and bring the message. Well, if you keep your Bibles open to that passage that was just read for you, the other day I was uh, working on just giving the title and so forth and the hymn numbers, and and uh, I, I sort of arbitrarily put a title on the bulletin, and that's done on Thursday. Then Friday I thought to myself, that's not a very good title because people drive by, I don't know if they even pay attention, but they might look at it, and, and some people who drive by might think it has some slam on, on the Arabs because it's Ramadan. And I thought, oh, that would not be good. So then I thought, and then there's another group that, that they might think it's, it's Arminian. Maybe they don't spell very well. And I thought, well, I don't want to get the Arminians mad at me. A fellow could get into a peck of trouble just by putting some letters and a sign out there. But uh, it is important to get a picture of the context of what is taking place here. And of course, it's always good to keep ourselves orientated. And you might say, oh, no, you're not going to do that again. But well, just for a smidge. And, and that is, of course, remember when, when Jacob is leaving home, it's for a few days. And we always have to set this in context. It doesn't take long for our lives to slip by. What was a few days when Rebecca is speaking to Jacob is 20 years, two decades. And we know that seven of those years flew by. Uh, those were the seven years when he was working for Rachel. We don't know uh, if the next seven years when he was actually working for Rachel with the, uh, the weight of having Leah uh, as his wife, uh, we don't know if those seven years went fast. It doesn't say they went fast. I rather doubt that the six years of turmoil with the family, with the brothers being upset about Jacob and suspicions from Laban about Jacob, probably didn't go very fast at all and probably was very heavy on his hands. It reached the point, and we saw it last week, where Jacob says, enough, we're out of here. 
And that's exactly what played through. Think back uh, a, a few verses, um, and, and we have that picture in uh, verse 20, where it tells us that Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. And he fled with all that he had, verse 21, and arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill, the hill country of Gilead. And now we have the scene tonight where Laban receives the news and he's not happy. Now, he has no reason to be discontent. He's had this man in his family for 20 years and he has prospered according to the handiwork and the expertise and the, the shepherd know-how of Jacob, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek, it was more God prospering Jacob in spite of himself and prospering Laban in spite of himself. And so we see how this all plays out. Laban is not a happy camper. On a couple of accounts, he's just lost the greatest shepherd that he's ever had. Also, he's lost something very near and dear to his heart, Rachel has helped herself to the household idols and has made off of them. So he's lost his shepherd and he's lost his gods, plural, all in one night. Jacob has a large flock and he is engaged in what is going to be about a 360-mile trip. And uh, those are long, hard miles because it's not just him and his family fleeing. It's him and his, his entourage, his shepherds, who are leading all the flock and, and driving them ahead. And so as a result of that, when Laban gets the news, he has a few days uh, where he can actually delay in chasing after him. The trip is going to take around 40 days. And Laban is in pursuit. And we find, sure enough, he's told that he's left. And on the third day, we find the, the picture of that news coming to him. Verse 23, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days journey and overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And so now we have this confrontation. Uh, and it's a confrontation of uh, father-in-law versus son-in-law. Now, most of the in-law kind of discussions that happen in our culture have to do with mother-in-law. Uh, quite a few years ago in the, it was either the late 50s or early 60s, uh, there was a song that actually made the charts. The worst person I know, mother-in-law. Maybe you know that song. Don't you dare sing it in the presence of your wife. But uh, it was a popular song, if you can imagine. And uh, they didn't mind singing about things in those days and purple people eaters and all that other stuff because the times were a lot different than they are today. And so here we have this picture of Laban in hot pursuit, and he catches up with Jacob, and he's not a happy camper. However, something happened, and it was very dramatic that happened on the way, and it's this, and it's a reminder, who's in charge of all of this? It's not just that God is sovereign over Jacob. God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over everyone. And while you might pick up the newspaper tomorrow morning and start to read the horrid uh, accounts that take place, and we just get a smattering of that, you would be utterly amazed at how little news we actually get and how, how sometimes the news we get is really not news at all. It's sort of the latest, you know, David Suzuki kind of spin on things. We get a little bit of that thrown at us and uh, a little bit of the decadence of our culture thrown at us. It's a big world. 
and there are lots of events that take place in this world day after day after day. And oftentimes we're guilty of looking at the world through North American eyes. And we sort of think that we're the center of the earth and, and this is where all the news is. There might be some things happening somewhere else, but it's of no importance. No, it's of big importance. And God is in charge. He is in control. And so we have this picture of Laban in pursuit. He overtakes him in the hill country. But notice in verse 24, we find out who's in charge here. And here is Laban, the idol worshiper, worshiping a score of idols. He had idols for everything. He had idols. Sort of think of the, the, think of the, the cabinet of, of the government of Canada, where you have a minister responsible for this and that and the other thing. And it just goes on and on and on. And, uh, and, and oftentimes they have rather silly appointments, as we learned back in the province called New Brunswick, that we're not going to tell you about tonight because we're ashamed of what happened. But uh, all sorts of ministers with all these portfolios. Well, that's, think of that in terms of paganism. They had a god that was responsible for this. There's, a, there's the air god, and there's the water god, and there's the, the minister of heat, the sun god, and, and on and on and on. And they, they had the moon god. The moon had its own god. And no matter what it was, they had a god for it. You recall, fast forward ahead into Egypt. What was so telling about the plagues of Egypt? The plagues of Egypt was God attacking the gods of Egypt. And that's why when the river turned to blood, this was an attack on the river god, the water god. And Egypt was humbled. Well, here's this pagan Laban who is, is, is surrounded, if you will, by a, a mantle. Think of a mantle of all sorts of trophies. Well, he has this large god mantle, and, and he has gods for everything, and all of a sudden the gods are gone, and now... He is going to have an encounter with the true and living God. It's not an encounter that leads to conversion. So we're not to read into it. But it is an encounter where he knows with whom he is dealing with, and he knows he better do what the God of gods tells him to do. And so God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. I'm in charge of what you're going to say. You go up to Jacob and start casting aspersions upon him and bringing threats upon him, you're in trouble. And Laban listens. Now, there's something important here, isn't there? If a pagan worshiper like Laban listens to God, why don't professing Christians listen to God? Why don't we listen when his word speaks to us? I'm not saying that you're hearing voices in the night. If I hear voices in the night, I need to change my bedtime diet. But we have God's holy word, and it's laid out for us in clear teaching. And Laban gives ear to God. And so God speaks to him and says, you be careful. Be careful how you speak to Jacob. And lo and behold... When he catches up with Jacob, Laban comes. And he comes, and his first words are sort of walking the line, aren't they? He's on the precipice. He comes, and he's, it starts off kind of rough. What have you done, verse 26? What have you done by deceiving me, carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? 
Why did you flee secretly and not tell me? And then all of a sudden he becomes a man that's on the campaign with focus on the family so he can win the Father of the Year award. It, it, it shifts dramatically. And now he's saying, well, uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to send you away with joy. Uh, I wanted to have a party for you, a farewell party. We wanted to bring out the, the, the timbrel and the lyre and the, the electric guitar and whatnot. And we were going to give you a send-off song. And, and it was so long, farewell to you and you and you. And goodbye. And away you go. And, and he's saying, this is what I wanted to do. And you, you took that opportunity from me. So this is Laban the deceiver at his very best. He's been deceiving from the get-go. He's a chyster. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. He knows how to stretch every rule. You know people like that, don't you? He knows how to stretch the rules. Oh, I didn't think you meant that. And he knows how to do that. That's his expertise. And so in this pursuit, he finally comes and he gives this wonderful little speech that sounds like he's really sincere. You didn't allow me, verse 28, to kiss my sons and daughters. And, and now you've done foolishly, foolishly. But here's the testimony. And it's a fascinating testimony. And it's a testimony that shows you that you can have a sense of theology and be dead as a dodo. Now notice what he says. He says, it is in my power, verse 29, to do you harm. The reality is it's not in his power. He can only go as far as God allows him to go. Remember how Job starts? Satan is meandering around. And God speaks to him. What have you been up to? I've been going to and fro. And I've been observing this man, Job. And Job is a happy man. And the reason why he's a happy man is not because he loves you. It's because you have given him all the, all the goodies of life. If you strip those goodies of life, if you take those things that he values from him, he will curse you to your face. And God sets the limit. You may do thus and so and no further. Would Satan have delighted to go further? You're happy, right? And God says no. And later on, there is a second wave of trouble that comes upon Job's life. And God again sets the limit. You may not harm him. You may not take his life. I'm God. You're the devil. Here's your limitation. That's it. And that's what he allows. And no further. And we have the same picture here. Not quite as graphic as in the life of Job. But Laban wrongly thinks that he can bring harm upon Jacob unilaterally. He cannot. He can only go as far as God allows him to go, no further. And so we have this picture. He, and it's a fascinating testimony. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. God spoke to this pagan man, this undeserving man, this chyster, and spoke to him and said, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. But now Laban's going to scratch where he itches. And it's a fascinating scratch because what does he say? In this whole provocation 
He accuses Jacob of deception again. Once again, he's walking the line and he accuses him of deception and then he takes it a step further. Notice what, what plays out here. <clears throat> Chapter 31, Laban says, you have gone away, verse 30. Why did you steal my gods? Now, it's fascinating that his gods have just been ruled totally irrelevant by the true and living God who comes and speaks and tells him exactly what to do. But Laban is hooked on his gods. Do you realize what a struggle it is? Sometimes we sort of say to ourselves when we're talking to unsafe people, I could have won them over to the Lord if I had been more persuasive. If I'd had better arguments, if I had a better gospel tract, if I, had, if I could give them the million-dollar gospel tract, if I had some gadget, some gizmo, some, something that would, would, I mean, they would come to Christ in a heartbeat. The realization is this. These people are dead in trespasses and sins. And it's going to take a sovereign work of God to move them from the stubbornness of their lostness. Now, does that mean we don't go and we fold our arms and say, well, I'm just going to sit back and let God do what he's going to do and go, God, go? No. We're responsible to evangelize, to speak to them, to make disciples of all the nations. We're responsible to do that. That's our work to do. But when the increase comes, the glory doesn't go. Remember Paul saying, not to Paul, not to Cephas, but God gave the increase. When a person that you've been talking with makes a profession of faith, you don't say, well, you know, I've been feeling pretty good. I knew. I, I, could, I had confidence that day when I went out. You could have confidence the day you went out evangelizing 364 days a year and then have a non-confident day. And the result of the 364 uh, Confident days versus the non-confident day will be the same result because it is always God who gives the increase. That's why we preach and pray and preach and pray and preach and pray. Whether the preaching takes place at home, at Tim's, and at the office, wherever it is that we go, that's what we're to do. But it's not just saying, it's praying as well. The Mormons have one thing right. I'll only give them one thing. And it's this, when the nice looking elders come knocking on your door and they're armed and dangerous with their Book of Mormon and their Bible, when they come doing that, you'll find yourself talking with only one of them. And the reason being, the other one is praying. Now we could learn from that. And, and Dr. Kennedy years ago at Coral Ridge said, we go out and he said, we, our community got so rough we actually decided that we would have to send our, our workers out in threes. That's how bad it was in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, they might have nice weather, but it ain't heaven. And uh, they started sending them out by threes because it was such a, a rough, tough, hard area. And he did that just for protection. And as a result, uh, one was doing the talking and two were praying. And they were laboring in prayer, praying that God would open the heart of the individual that was being spoken to. And they have that understanding, and it's a proper understanding. God's in charge. He's always in charge. And here we have this man, Laban, who has all sorts of accusations, and he's lost his greatest asset in life, 
and that is he's lost his gods. They're of absolutely no use, but that is the blinding effect of godlessness in our culture. We're a nation of worshipers. Number one religion in Canada is humanism. We worship ourselves. We worship our will. We worship our desires. And, and we, 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 we've seen a government become nothing more than a make-a-wish foundation that whatever strange things people want to have, we have a government that's willing to say, well, that's legal now. It was never legal. It's never legal unless God says it's right. And so that's our culture. And that's Laban. And that's our culture. And it's a little of Laban. And it's a little more of our culture. And no matter how you look at it, you find yourselves surrounded by idol worshipers. I was thinking of it the other day. It's not a very profound thought. But isn't it funny that one of the more popular shows that's come, I don't know if it's still going or not, but it's one of the talent shows on TV. And what's it called? American Idol. Isn't that fascinating? They had Canadian Idol for a while, and now it became Canadian Idol as an IDLE, and then it became Canadian non-existent. But isn't it strange that one of the more popular shows is a show where they declare that the winner uh, and, and new champion of the year is, is an idol. Here is your next American idol, and the signs are saying clappity-clap, and confetti and stuff has fallen from the ceiling, and everybody's whoop-de-doing. What's an idol? What's idolatry? God says it's placing on a pedestal anything, anyone, other than him. He is the true God, and he is to be on the pedestal. He is the one that is to be worshipped. And we're not to commit idolatry by, by sending our attention, giving our, our, our praise, our accolades to anyone but God. It's God first, and God second, and third, and fourth, and fifth. It's always God. And here is this man with his love of his idols. Now notice what takes place here, because it's very important. There's, a, there's a, a pattern here. Would you say Jacob's a deceiver? And Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Would you say Laban's a deceiver? Yeah, he's a deceiver too. So they really are meant for one another. And here's what takes place. The accusation comes regarding the fact that the gods have gone amissing. And notice what takes place. Jacob, in verse 31, replies to Laban that he left because he was afraid. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Which shows you the esteem and the relationship they had. But then in verse 32, he says this. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my, among my belongings. Take it for yourself. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen from him. This is another uh, Japheth vow moment. Whoever has these gods has breathed their last. That's it. He's just pronounced a death sentence unknowingly, unwittingly, on his daughter Rachel. He didn't realize that she was a little kleptomaniac. Now, the hard thing is this. 
what do you expect? Laban is an idol worshiper. The lady has been brought up in that environment of idol worship for the entirety of her life. It's a pagan culture. There's something else we learn, and it's this, and it's a hard lesson. I don't think that Jacob would want to teach his daughter to be a deceiver. And I think you would agree with me on that. That Jacob would not want to teach her, I'm going to teach you how to rip off your father. I'm going to teach you how to lie, cheat, and steal. I'm going to teach you all these things. It's been a part of your father's life. It's been a part of, of my life. And I want to pass it on to you. No, that's not what he does. But there's a hard lesson. And it's this. That the lessons that we labor to teach are often unlearned. Now, every parent knows this. We wish that every child came with a little screw on the top of their noggin and we just get our Phillips out and, and take the screw off and then just dump in glug, 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 glug. All of our, our, our knowledge and, and the word of God and a, a couple of MacArthur sermons to boot and then seal it up and bang, there we go. Brand new, spanking new, sharp thinking Christian, loves the Lord, passionate for the gospel. And everybody says, well, boy, well, is there instructions on it? Can we, get, can we Google that up? And the reality is, no, we can't, because it isn't. But here's the hard lesson, and here's the scary lesson. The lessons that we labor to teach our children are often unlearned. However, they're picking up other things that we do that we're not trying to teach them, but that's what they pick up. That's what they lay a hold of. And if you have never been confronted by your son, your daughter, or whoever else is in your household, well, dad does that. You did that, mom. You say, well, I didn't teach you to do that. Yeah, but you did it. Isn't that true? That's, we, we didn't want them to learn those lessons. I want my daughter to think that I'm the greatest dad in the world. I'm brainwashing her for all I can. But it's not true. It's not true. We're sinners. And we are like Cromwell, who said to the artist, paint me warts and all. Because I know, and you know, in your life and my life, that we're teaching lessons unconsciously. We don't want to teach them. We don't mean to teach them. All we have to do to teach them is live. And they are readily readily picked up by our children. That's why we pray so hard. That's why we labor so hard. That's why we find ourselves struggling, struggling, struggling in the culture that we live in, in the day we live in. It, it's, it's war. It's holy war. It's war for the hearts and minds of our children. And here, Rachel has learned from Laban idolatry. And Rachel has learned from Jacob stealing, deception. She's learned how to lie with a straight face. There was a wonderful study on people oh, I, so about a decade ago now. And it, it, it really stood out in my mind. It was a lady in the States who was a professional juror selector. It was fascinating. It was even better than the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey game. 
I chose it over the leaves. And she was talking about how to, how to pick out a deceiver. And she talked about jurors that were lousy jurors. They were liars. And she was picking up on their body language and picking up at, on, on how their eyes were pointed when, when questions were asked, they were very sharp, and the eye contact was not eye to eye, but was sort of off that way and sort of over there and, and down there and, and on and on and on. And she said, mind you, she said, there are some very skilled people that can lie and not blink. And she said, if you want to have examples of that, all you have to do is look at our politicians. I won't say who was the president of the United States at that time, but he was pretty slick. And, and so we have a, a picture of that. Yeah, that's right, Slick Willie, okay. So, but that's it. They know how to lie. And here we have this picture. Jacob doesn't realize there are gods in the camp stashed away amongst Rachel's loot. Laban's hot after the gods. Where are my gods? Who took my gods? I'm searching the joint. I'm going to find my gods. Jacob concurs. When you find out the scallywag that has the gods, that's it for them. And Laban, verse 33, goes into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent. And notice the providence of God here. He's doing his little tent search. He went into Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. And in the providence of God and in the preserving of God, Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them, and Laban felt all through the tent, and you could just get the picture of this guy, and he's pounding on the floor. Remember, Achan? Don't loot these people. And Achan sees the gold, sees the treasure. They were not to take it. Laban helped himself, buries it in his tent. Israel goes off to, to, to defeat Ai. Israel comes back. They got routed by Ai. And they're grieving. And they're trying to figure out, how is it that we had this conquest over this mighty city, Jericho, and now we go to this little town. It's sort of like conquering that great city of Windsor and then getting slaughtered in Cottom. How could this happen? And they're trying to think it through. And they know that sin is in the camp. And you know the search that went on. And do you recall what happened? You say, yeah, they found the goods. Yeah, they found the goods. But there's something interesting about what happened. Not only was Achan's life taken from him, the whole family forfeited the right to live. And the whole family ceased to exist in a moment of time because God's judgment came upon them. Now this is mighty big that God spares Rachel in this situation. This is gigantic in, in, in terms of the mercy of God. With Laban searching, Jacob making the promise that wherever you find them, that's it. And he comes up empty. Does it mean the idols were not there? No, of course not. She was sitting on them. And Laban, at this point, realizes he can't find them. 
They can't be there. He felt through all the tent, verse 34 tells us, and he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched and did not find the household idols. Fascinating, isn't it? She has a ready-made excuse. And her father is not going to violate her. And he backs off. See, God delivers sinners out of sin. He doesn't always give us what we deserve. He operates out of the plentitude of his mercy. Was she guilty? Yeah, she was guilty. She was guilty by God's law. She was guilty by the pagan laws of the Arameans. And God spares her. And Jacob, not realizing what was going on and what in our common parlance is what a bullet this man dodged, but it was not him dodging bullets that got him out of this mess. It was God in his sovereignty, exercising sovereignty over Laban, over Jacob, over Rachel. See, God uses strange situations, doesn't he? I was reading in preparation for the Leviticus studies in, in, in Sunday school, reading through the book of Hebrews, and I, I got to Hebrews 11 the other day. It doesn't have a lot of connection with what we're doing in Leviticus, but it's just always a good read, isn't it? And you stop and think, isn't it fascinating how Rahab is regarded as a faithful woman? Isn't it fascinating how she found herself on the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that amazing? I just find that amazing. If I'm the only one that finds it amazing, uh, I'll tell you why it's amazing at the door. But I just find that absolutely amazing. Rahab, the woman of the night, finds herself being used by God to spare his servants, to lead to the conquer of a wicked city, and lo and behold, she becomes a woman of faith. Hebrews 11, Luke, Matthew, in the genealogies, and lo and behold, here's this woman. God just exercises his sovereignty, and he shows himself in the life of Jacob, Laban, and Rachel. The last part, and we must wrap up, the last part of this is a bit of a review in that Jacob is going to, uh, as we say, ventilate. Now, we're not big fans of ventilating. Uh, people that just feel, I just had to get this off my chest. They don't really need to get it off their chest. They need to go to the Lord and pray, Lord, give me self-control. Do you imagine what it would be like in a church if everybody had to get something off their chest? Good grief. Talk about a tarrying meeting. It would just go on and on and on and on and on. Somewhere along the line, the fruit of the Spirit, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I don't need to say everything that's on my mind. And a lot of times I shouldn't say what's on my mind. We need to exercise self-control. And so we have this picture here that, that, that all of a sudden Jacob loses it in verse 36. He becomes angry, and now he's contending with Laban. And Laban's probably sorry he had that dream. He probably wanted to slug Jacob right about now. And, he, and now here it is. What is my transgression? What is my sin? 
that you have hotly pursued me. And then he goes on, you found through all my goods, and even though they were there. And then he says, 20 years I've been with you, verse 38. And he talks about the success that he's had as a shepherd. And then he goes on and he talks about how he has prospered and, and, and benef- been, been a benefactor to Laban. And he's really just letting go. He's mad. He's hostile. He replies tersely. He replies the way that an unregenerate person replies and, and treats people. And he goes on and he says this in closing. If God, verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he has rendered judgment last night. And what's going to happen next? And it's a fascinating passage. When the statement is made to Jacob in verse 43, when he replies, Laban replies to Jacob and mentions the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and so forth. It has a fascinating result. Here we have Laban, the pagan deceiver, and Jacob, who is growing very, very slowly, growing into a man of God. It doesn't happen overnight. And this is what happens. Laban the crook, Jacob the immature, and now these two, who are crooked from the get-go, We read these words, verse 44, showing there's a lot of humor in Scripture. So come, let us make a covenant with you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Let's make a covenant. I have a history of being a deceiver, a liar, and a cheat. And and Jacob has the, the history of being a deceiver, and a liar, and a cheat. Here are a couple of crooks, and they're going to make a covenant. Would you sign a covenant with a crook? Would you sign a contract with a crook? If somebody had ripped you off real bad and, and, and then came along and said, uh, I, I, I want to do something, and, and would, would, you, would you sponsor me? Can I get you to co-sign a, a loan with me when, when I've lost my, my house, my cars, my dogs, my cats, my wife, my children, and... and, and but I'm, I need a new start, and I've got a new plan. And would, would you sign that with me? And you'd say, are you nuts? Here's this hand of God upon these men, and he's bringing them together, not in a covenant of spiritual agreement, but nevertheless a covenant where they in actuality are going to watch out for one another, and that's not always in the best of terms but they're going to watch for one another to make sure that the other one is not cheating. That's not a pretty covenant. We don't make that kind of covenant in a marriage. We don't make that kind of covenant when we gather around the Lord's table. But in the context of these men, that's the agreement that they're going to make. Who's in charge anyway? I always remember my time at Sears, and we talk about it, we laugh about it to this day. Uh, I had just the best job ever uh, at Sears that I'll tell you about sometime. It's not part of the message. 
but a lady came into the Sears store. And I could hear her. I'm in a back room doing uh, price audits. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge? Well, I'm curious. I've got to go see the woman. What's going on? And my friend Scotty and I, whose favorite line was, beam, beam her up. We, we go to the door and we peek out. And here's a woman. And she's about Granny Clampett size. And she's got a plastic bag with a dead goldfish. And what's she want? She wants to know who's in charge. She wants to get this refund on the dead goldfish. The gal's name was, was, was her name was Margaret. That's a nice name. I like that. And she's the one that knit me the toque. She knit all the boys at Sears toques to keep our little heads warm. And this lady has this dead goldfish. Scotty thought I should do something. You're a pastor. Well, the dead goldfish is taken from the lady, laid on the table. As soon as the lady's gone into the waste can, I go out, Marg, I got to know, what was the refund? She burst into tears from laughter. 34 cents. <laughs> 34 cents. She's come to quibble over 34 cents over a dead goldfish. I don't care who you are in the environmental deal in this day and age, they don't have souls. Although there's a fish called soul, but that's another issue. You see all this stuff that people get excited about? Who took my gods? Who took my gods? What are they? They're useless. They're like a stick, a rock. And we're going to get excited about that. Laban, we'll see, goes home empty-handed. And he goes home without God. And whenever we're brought into the presence of God, which happens in a worship service, which happens in the life of Laban, and you go away empty-handed, you go away at great, great loss. It was by the providence of God that this woman, Leah, who had a problem husband by the name of Jacob, and this woman, Rachel, who was a problem to her husband, Jacob, it is by the providence of God that they are uprooted of their paganry and sent home with a man of the covenant. That's what we're to be, people of the covenant. And those in our families are to be privileged that they're in the family of a man, a woman, who are in covenant with God. And I wonder if you recognize that blessing in your life tonight. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, We bow before you. We see your sovereignty over a pagan man like Laban. We see your sovereignty over a man like Jacob who had all sorts of problems, all sorts of sins, and a whole lot of growing to do. We see the turmoil that takes place, the lying. We come to the realization that we're not immune to sin. And we're in need of a savior from our sin. Laban was angry. God intervened. Laban searched for his idols. God intervened. And the story of our lives is not over yet. But when we look back on our lives, we'll find out again and again and again and again, you have kindly intervened.
and we bow before you and we give you thanks. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts and draw us closer, closer, closer to you, that we would find that propensity of sin slowly fading away and our love for Christ growing more and more. Guide and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.